to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Community building is one of those activities that many organizations believe that they should do, but very few know how to go about doing it and very few execute on it well. My guest today is Tim Courtney, who spent seven years running the Lego Ideas community. And in this episode, we discuss what he learned about how to build and nurture a community that turns customers into passionate evangelists for the brand. Tim has a ton of great insight around what makes community building initiatives work, and I I think you'll find it really helpful. Uh, With that, let's go to Tim. All right, Tim, thanks for uh, being here. Why don't we um, just start with with what you're up to these days? What do you you help folks do? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, my name is is Tim Courtney. I'm right now, I have a solo practice that is, uh, that I just started in January. Um, It is consulting and it's expert support for corporate innovation teams. Um, you know, or people who are helping corporate innovation teams. And so far what that means and what that looks like is um, the clients that I've been working with want research, um, they want strategy, advice, and help with standard processes like design sprints. Um, Thanks to the time that I spent at Lego, um, it actually, and and being a part of an innovation function there or a a product or service that came out of an innovation team, um, you know, I can... I've been in their shoes and I can, I can help people see around corners. And so I'm really looking to sharpen that and, um, and really help people, you know, get things right, um, you know, sooner, you know, and avoid some, avoid some missteps and, and have a lot of fun along the way. Um, so you mentioned Lego, I know you were, you were very heavily involved there for, for a fair amount of time. And, and if I understand correctly, specifically, you know, kind of helping them stand up that whole Lego ideas concept and some of the other stuff kind of around the community. For, for folks that aren't familiar with Lego ideas and, and, and the various initiatives that were kind of, uh, that that was a part of, um, tell us a little bit about what it was, first of all, and what was the genesis of it and how you happened to get involved with it. Yeah, Lego Ideas is a crowdsourcing platform uh, and, and program that the Lego group runs. And if you're, for those familiar with crowdsourcing, if you're not familiar, um, a company will put out a call for ideas or designs or an innovation um, to to the public. And people will submit those ideas. There might be some sort of a ranking or sorting system. Sometimes it's crowdfunding, sometimes it's voting or different stages of voting. And and then, um, you know, ultimately there's there's a, uh, a crowd-inspired product or service or idea that is, is realized somehow. Um, Lego's flavor of that, a, a Lego Ideas, is where the company asks um, really their, their most loyal fans, 13 years old and older, um, hey, what do you want to be the next Lego set? You know, or what, what's your idea for a Lego set? And then what people do is they actually build that idea out of real Lego bricks, or if they don't have real Lego bricks, um, they can build them out of virtual, like uh, any one of the number of um, fan-created CAD software uh, that lets you create 3D Lego models and, and render them nicely. Bottom line is make a nice presentation. You know, like you're like you're going into the board and you're going to pitch your your idea. You want it to be really high quality. And describe that idea, how you see that realized as a as a product. And then when you submit it to the site, your peers then vote on it. Um, the ideas that get the requisite number of votes, right now it's 10,000 votes from peers in the website, those will go into a periodic design review 
that runs, it runs three times a year. I think it's every four months or something like that. And essentially all the ideas that are qualified in those batches, they're evaluated by a cross-functional team within Lego. Um, it's, it's marketers, it's product designers, um, it's that core Lego ideas team. And out of that comes one or two usually um, ideas that, that actually become Lego sets. And so that's a process where they take what we call the fan designer, the person who's submitting the idea, and they get to collaborate. It's, it's remote collaboration, um, you know, check-ins with the, with the product designer. And they get to give input into certain design directions and decisions. And, you know, as the designer adapts it to um, the company's design standards and, you know, to available elements and, and price point and, and things like that. Um, when the product goes to market, the company actually makes them a part of the story. Their story is in the building instructions. Um, the, they're usually flown to a couple of different Lego store locations around the world. Usually there's one, at least one in a Lego store that's near where they live. Um, you know, if there's one, where they live somewhere in the world and, um, and then they, they, there's a signing event. So they get to sign boxes. People line up, um, for, you know, a couple of hours ahead of time. And they're the first to buy this new Lego set and that fan designer sees it you know, like someone would sign a book. So it's really this all-star treatment that they get um, because they submitted an idea to, um, to Lego Ideas, um, um, you know, to, to kind of inspire the next um, Lego, Lego product. You asked me how it got started. And, and that goes back to 2008. Um, when it started, it actually wasn't called Lego Ideas. It was called Lego Kuso. And that's uh, named after a company in Japan called Kuso System. Um, there's an entrepreneur, um, in Tokyo, his name is Kohei Nishiyama and he has this company called Kuso. And at the time, uh, he teamed up with the head of Lego new business group. That was an innovation lab function, um, at that time, uh, named Paul Smith Meyer. And the two of them, uh, um, created this idea to like, what if we could take this Kuso platform that was crowdsourced products in Japan, merge that with Lego and and get people to you know submit ideas for new lego products um that was uh, pretty radical for the company and so what they decided to do in the beginning was contain it to the japanese market um they launched the program in japanese um it was like a thousand votes and that was also like before social media had really tipped so things took a lot longer i think to spread virally and but they were able to prove it out. So they were able to get all kinds of wild and crazy ideas um, because you, you don't really know what the crowd's going to come back with um, when, you, when you put something out there. And we're able to release a couple of products in Japan for the Japanese market that, um, you know, were, were, were inspired by people there. So there was a submarine um, that was a Japanese, uh, you know, a submarine that was a research vessel. And so they're going for like cultural elements or items of, you know, national pride. Right. And there was a spacecraft, uh, too, that went to a, an asteroid and recovered some, some samples from the asteroid. Those were the Lego sets that were made. There were also like pagodas and temples and houses and, um, icons like that, that, that didn't become products, but there was, those are the kinds of ideas that were being sourced because of the location, um, it was in. And, and I'll back up a little bit because the reason why they decided to focus that in Japan is um, it was such an unproven 
concept. So this thing could have, you know, completely flopped um, or or broken some processes, or you know, or it could have just the demand could have been just so overwhelming, right? If they did that worldwide and in English. And so that was between 2008 and 2011. And by the time 2011 rolled around, they said, hey, we like this. We want to pilot this worldwide. And around the summer of 2011, um, the team at Lego started talking to me about coming on board and running the community aspect of, of the site and, and really running the day-to-day -day operations of it. And the reason they were asking me that is because I've been involved in the online community of Lego superfans for, uh, by now, I think it's, you know, 23, 24 years, something like that. It was the late, um, it was 96, maybe it was like 22 years. It's, it's crazy, more than half my life, um, you know, being involved in this internet community of, of, of Lego geeks, right? And, um, you know, when I had some of that, you know, Sean, you and I, when we were talking, it was, it was Chicago in the mid 2000s, you know, startup community, and I was doing some community events. And so they saw the Lego background, they saw the community organizing that I had done for the Lego community, and they saw the community organizing I was doing um, in the in the startup world, and and said, "Hey Tim, you know, come on board." And and so um, that was interesting. I had wanted to work for Lego before, but it wasn't like a dream I was actively pursuing at that moment in time. So I I used to call it like the dream job that found me um because yeah i mean it was awesome and it was definitely an adventure um i you know i signed up for it for for a few different reasons i love the company i i also believe in the idea that they were um putting together of this this crowdsourcing and it was just great exposure and great experience so that's how it how it got started and how i got started with it yeah that's awesome i i i saw a presentation from you at one point uh, a few years ago, and I remember you talking about, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a point culturally where where Lego was like not allowed to accept sort of unsolicited ideas and would actually send like a form letter back to people saying, hey, sorry, thanks, but sorry, we can't actually do anything with this. What, um, first of all, is, is that accurate or am I remembering it incorrectly? But then if it was accurate, what, what sort of prompted the cultural shift that kind of, um, change their minds about being more open and kind of and kind of uh, embracing the community in a new way. So so part of my uh, passion for working on this project is is working through my issues of all the ideas that got rejected when I was a kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding about that. Um, I actually do probably have a couple of those letters sitting in the archives in my parents house. Um, but but yeah, that's a good point. So I did I put in the presentation. Um, if if in the 80s, 90s, as a kid, you were to call up Lego or you were to write them a letter and say, hey, I think you should make Lego airplane or whatever, right? Um, then you would get this really nicely worded form letter back uh, from a woman named Susan Williams. Um, and it was like, oh, um, um, you know, we can't accept your idea because we have this whole, you know, design group in Denmark and, you know, blah, 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 yada, yada. It was this nice way of letting you down. Um, and... I mean, one can imagine, you know, any, anyone can can combine the idea of Lego bricks and like and some other idea. And what if you send a letter in and, you know, a few months later, then the company comes out with that product and a consumer is confused and they think, oh, did they just steal my idea? Not knowing that, you know, that's been in a development pipeline for 18, 24 months um, and that's gone through a product development process. You know, most 
people don't know how consumer products get made. And and I think that was just a, you know, at the time that was pre-internet, that was pre-social media. And um, so there was a rather conservative approach um, approach to that. Lego Ideas, Lego Kuso, um, really was riding the wave of the, you know, the, the web 2.0, the crowdsourcing, you know, of the mid 2000s um, and saying, hey, can we do this as a part of our innovation process? And, and so it was also seen as a way to channel, to redirect some of that energy where instead of at the contact center having to say, hey, no, sorry, um, it's uh, we don't accept those ideas here, but you can go over here. Um, and yeah, so, and there's a couple of different directions I could take the conversation from there, but I want to, uh, um, I hope, did I answer the question? I just want to make sure that it's, it's relevant because I could, I could go a few different directions from here. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that, that, that's fine. Um, I, I, I want to kind of get into sort of the variables that you think kind of made, made this initiative. Cause it's, it's at this point, it's, I mean, they are if not the most well-known example of kind of open innovation and sort of crowdsourcing ideas from their customer base, it's definitely one of, right? And, and you know, I think that they're in, you know, case studies and universities and things like that at this point. So as someone who was there and saw it from the, you know, firsthand and had a big role in kind of um, executing on it, what do you think were some of the things that made it as successful as it was? Well, I think it's important to first back up a little bit further and, and look at where the company was in the 2000s. Um, it, for, for those who aren't familiar, um, the Lego company had you know fairly steady growth and then an inflection point, I want to say, from the late, um, and I'm not looking at the charts, late 1970s into the 80s. You know, Sean, we're we're around the same age. You know, we grew up with the you know, the spaceships and stuff like that. And you know, a, a lot of people in our generation, you know, knew Lego as this you know really awesome toy as a kid. And you know, into starting in the late '90s, but definitely in the early 2000s, the company started straying away from its core product and core idea. That core idea being a system of play of interlocking bricks that can be combined in infinite you know different ways. But every component of the Lego system works with every other component of the Lego system. And, and they started seeing their success. They started straying into media and, oh, kids are on computers. We're gonna do computer games. We're gonna do, um, you know, there's the theme parks, of course. There's, there's these different lines of business. There was even like action figures. Um, so you could like pull them apart by limbs, but you they weren't construction toys. Um, and, and so the core fans, which by that point in time were connected on the internet, um, you know, we're starting to see this and, hey, this is getting dumbed down. They're making um, new pieces that are really just co like single molded combinations of smaller pieces. And that's just dumbing things down for kids. Plus, you know, I'm an adult collector and I can't get all the parts I want to build my thing. Um, but the, the interesting thing was the financials started reflecting that, too. They got spread, um, you know, a bit too thin. Um, and they had three years of successive losses from, I want to say 2001 or two to like 2004 or five. And, and then there was a crisis moment where the company at the time, third generation family owned, it's still family owned. It's now almost fully transitioned to the fourth generation, um, uh, you know, had to make some really hard decisions and, 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 you know, they could have lost the company or it could have had to be, you know, sold or gone into bankruptcy or gone public and they would have lost control of that. Um, uh, of, and really the family has been guiding what makes Lego, you know, so special for generations. Um, 
so there was a, a crisis moment, and Kelker uh, Christensen, who's the uh, third-generation family owner, he had had two stints, I think, as CEO prior, and he brought on um, uh, young at the time uh, McKinsey alum Jorn B. Knustorp, who's the turnaround CEO. And Keldon Yorn went around um, the world, I think, certainly business schools in the U.S. and also Lego fan conventions and said, hey, you know, we've got a little bit of a problem here. Um, what are you, you know, dear business student, what are you, dear hardcore Lego fan who is attending a convention in your in your spare time? You know, what do you think we should do about this? And what they were able to realize is, is that um, they had straight away from the core, you know, that plus other inputs they received, you know, they had, and they really narrowed it back down to that core brick. They closed down certain product lines. They simplified the um, assortment of elements. Uh, they sold off certain assets that weren't in the core business, including the theme parks, which were then uh, licensed the Lego brand to a company called Merlin Entertainment because their whole business is operating theme parks. And then they started to, you know, stabilize things and rebuild from there. And so that was 2004, 2005. Lego Cuso started in 2008. Um, Paul Smith Meyer, who is the head of New Business Group, he um, he was fresh off of a couple of successes with the next generation of Lego Mindstorms Robotics, which involved the um, lead users in the community, the people who had like hacked the Mindstorms brick and crapped the, crapped the firmware and you know everything, and then he was also part of um, a series of products called Lego. It's called Lego Creator, and it was um, it's all the like animals. Like you get a box that's animals, you get a box that's trucks, you get a box that's planes. Yeah, the three like now it's three in one, but it was the the inception of that where it was really like how many different things can you create with basic elements? Really getting back to the core of what Lego, the essence of what Lego is, um, and and so Paul was charged with. Um, Hey, develop new business models within Lego, and and bring those to market. You know, go go and experiment. And Lego Cuso, the crowdsourcing was one of those bets. Now, something else that came out of that time frame, uh, which I think you know everyone who follows Lego probably knows about, is Lego Architecture. And Lego Architecture is um, it was an entrepreneur and architect, Adam Reed Tucker in Chicago, actually a good friend of mine, and he. Um, he pitched the idea of this architecture product line. Um, and really that was kind of a unique point in history where Lego was open to these um, you know, entrepreneurial ideas that eventually scaled into big businesses. Um, so culturally there was kind of this, there was the crisis, there was the correction, and then there's the how do we start to innovate around this core system? And, and the notion of involving people uh, from the public and celebrating the brand, um, it you know it 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 was something that was worth trying, um, and I think it it certainly wasn't a foregone conclusion. I can talk about some of the the challenges that we had, um, you know, along the way, um, but that's kind of contextually where it fit at the time. Got it. So yeah, I mean, let, like from an execution perspective, I mean, what were what were some of the things that you ran into or lessons that someone that was maybe trying to embark on a, on a similar type of initiative initially, what were some of the things that you learned about either pitfalls to avoid or what are some of the challenges that folks are likely to encounter that you ran into? Um, in the very beginning, and I can speak from when, when I joined, um, you know, I have uh, people have recounted to me, you know, what, you know, what happened prior. Um, 
when I came in, there was a, a very nascent design brief. And the platform was accepting any kind of idea that had to do with a Lego brick. And that meant a jacket with a logo on it. Um, somebody submitted like uh, storage bricks you could put on the back of a motorcycle. Um, you know, an outlet interlocking electrical outlet system. And you can imagine the complexity of these different kinds of products or ideas that weren't the core business of, of Lego, right? The R&D costs and the testing. And in the, in the case of electrical, like the, the certifications you'd have to get, you know, in order to bring that to market. Um, and so one of the Im immediate things was, was simply just locking down that design brief. We had a set of... Um, of guidelines, submission guidelines that that I authored with input from Lego set designers and from marketing managers and from project managers who knew what was possible um, to um, to commercialize within you know and still be a sustainable business right for a single SKU um, you know have a, a a good business case and. And so it was about how do we narrow down? And then it was over the coming years, we we made that design brief as open as we could. And then we we tried to shift some of the burden of proof, you know, over to the crowd. So it's like, hey, if it gets enough votes, we'll consider it. And over time, certain ideas um, that might have that we learned were out of scope, like uh, having a new element, a, a new Lego shape, a new Lego part um, commissioned. Um, or uh, people wanted to submit entire play themes and develop their own fantasy universe around, you know, their brand of knights or space people or something like that. And um, and so we, you know, we learned that the the development that goes into a winning concept, you know, at that level, it's just it's just something that never would fly off of off of this. And what really narrowed down to was the single box of existing Lego elements. Um, so it's something that could be turned around relatively quickly. Um, that minimized supply chain issues and it, you know, it allowed, and so we, we reflected the submission guidelines, you know, to that, which some people weren't happy with, but it was in the interest of helping ensure their, their longer term happiness by us being able to green light an idea they submitted. Um, another challenge that was, um, was there was imagine, uh, you know, a brand with the popularity of Lego and people are submitting all kinds of awesome ideas for stuff, but they're, they're blending it with like IPs or movies or games that, that might not fit the family friendly, um, image of the company. <laughs> so, um, so the need to adjust those submission guidelines also, um, to ever so carefully publicly communicate brand values, you know, without, um, Without uh, and, and and then that's something that's always open to interpretation. So there's it's not black and white, um, and and there's a whole lot of gray in there. And so we had to make adjustments as we went, and that's um, that's a communication challenge with the general public, and that's also something that can be um, misinterpreted and repeated in different ways, and you know kind of spread throughout the the blogosphere and and into media about you know what kinds of content or ideas does does lego accept or not um you know so there's there's certainly that's an that's another one i think another one is integrating with um you know into i mean integrating with the standard processes inside the company i can't go into too much detail there um but you know but you can imagine you've got a of a, a, a funnel of uh you know of ideas in a in a um in a, in a development process and you've got to align that with what's already going on you know across the company um, 
I know that, or I, I, I read, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that the, 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 the whole Minecraft phenomenon was kind of a, a big uh, sort of inflection point for, for you all. Is that something that, first of all, was that, is that, am I right that that came out of initially out of the ideas kind of program? And then, and then secondly, did that just sort of happen or is there a component of the program where you all are sort of deliberately filter like you're sort of keeping your finger on the pulse of sort of, of pop culture and what's going on there and using that as a lens through which to kind of pick winners and things like that like like how did how did that whole thing unfold yeah lego minecraft now which is actually a, a pretty significant product range um and it came out of the the, the initial lego minecraft set um was out of lego kuso and that was submitted by a couple of fans of Minecraft who were also Lego fans. And it, I mean, it spread like wildfire when what happened was the Mojang, the, the company uh, that produces Minecraft, they found out about it and they put it on their social media and it ended up crashing our servers. <laughs> so, um, you know, so there was a little bit of back and forth in the sense that like we knew they weren't going to go away. Right. Um, and we knew they were going to, you know, ridicule us until we got our servers back online um <laughs> you know and so when we did um you know we quickly it quickly reached the threshold and um it, it wasn't it wasn't a proactive thing um it was user inspired and then but but occasionally we would find and that was probably the most high visibility case but occasionally we would find a, a company behind a licensed property that would um, would find out about someone's submission and they would amplify it, right? Um, that the program was never intended to spin off product lines. Um, in fact, the guidelines um, talked about, hey, it's this is about one product, and if you you know if something more comes of it, you know those are you know that's you know that's kind of on us, right? That's not a that's not the, you know you, you don't get to participate in perpetuity you know if you spark the idea of, of, of something like Lego Minecraft and um, but it was an unintentioned I, I don't know there's been a couple of others that have had follow-ups like that but um, it was certainly an opportunity to secure a new um, yeah secure a new um, relationship and you know, and then move on, and and move on from there if there was market demand. So I think it was um, it was purely opportunistic, but you know, pretty awesome because I like, look at what that's become. Yeah, that's neat. Um, and the 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 program itself, I mean, there wasn't one. If I and again, forgive me if I'm inaccurate, but um, my understanding is that the program wasn't one kind of initiative. There were sort of a group of initiatives, and and you had them kind of on a continuum where it was like on the one hand. Um, you know, you, you, you all, you know, maybe a, the, a, a user, not user, but a, a customer or fan comes up with a concept and you produce them um, all the way up to where you even support um, and kind of will promote people's creations that they kind of took it upon themselves to kind of create. And, and it just seems like relative to most organizations um, who, um, who, who, who dabble in community engagement um, are pretty quick about what is and isn't okay. And relatively speaking, I mean, it seems like you all have been more open than most about not trying to police things too much. Was that, again, was that just part of baked into sort of Lego's values or was that something that you all had to sort of organically kind of arrive at um, through this, this process? Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's a, that's a fine line, and I think it, it. I mean, it definitely it definitely predates um, my own role there. Um, there's a group of um, of people who have been charged with engaging with the community of of fans, and you know how how do those those how are those people uh, how does the company engage with them how do they how do they um, maybe even support you know or amplify their efforts, and that was a set of guidelines and principles that was developed over time. Um, the Tormida Skiltson, who's the uh, head of the community group, um, and Lego Ideas moved into that group. And so I, I spent most of my time at, at Lego working in, in his area, um, has really pioneered the way the company engages um, uh, with this audience. And, and that was from originally, there's a story about Lego um, Mindstorms, which is the robotics system that back in the late 1990s, there were some people who hacked the firmware of the brick and posted it online. Um, and so it was a pretty reactionary. There were people in the company who wanted to send the lawyers after them. And, and Torment can tell the story much better than I can. Um, but, you know, at one point, I think he had the idea to, oh, let's just meet with these people. We're going to be at the same event, um, you know, as these people at MIT. Let's just you know, let's just meet with them and then kind of came back realizing, hey, these aren't bad people. You know, these people who are just really, really passionate about this this product and we've got to figure out a way to work with them. And there's always been a tension between what I think users want to do when they remix, you know, someone's original work and how do you maintain the integrity of your own company, your own brand, and how do you not, you know, you're not 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 be too heavy handed and stifle um, people, because if you if you do that in the wrong way, you could actually create some backlash and resentment, right? So, um, it it that practice predated what we did on Lego um, ideas. Now, like I mentioned earlier, I've been a part of this community for for over twenty years, so I had been seeing this from the other side. Um, you know, I'd already been up to speed on um, a lot of these principles and ways of working, and I had a lot of engagement with people at the Lego company prior. Um, so having had that experience and also having been a part of the community, it was very, very natural for me to continue um, as we develop the Lego Ideas program in that um, vein. So the some of the other things you might allude to about promoting people's creations or um, other ways of support, those are just other initiatives that the Lego company has done with um, fans and artists and builders around the world. Those are outside the scope of, of the Lego Ideas program. Um, since then, and for the last several years, the team has been piloting a, um, a design challenge kind of contest model. Um, and that was, was on another part of lego.com for a period of time. And then that was rolled into Lego Ideas last year, where it's, hey, here's a challenge to design um, you know, this kind of Star Wars ship or, or something. It could be anything. It, there was one for a Ford Mustang recently, and they're not all licensed properties either. It's sometimes it's, you know, come up with a creative um, um, creative uh, uh, spaceship that's that can't have any licensing, you know, third-party IP on it. And then, you know, people submit all those ideas, they're voted on, and you have a winner and, and runners-up. And that becomes either marketing content or that becomes... Um, 
a, a premium, uh, like a like a promo model that's given away or something. Or there's different outcomes, you know, for that. So that's a way of crowdsourcing designs to a specific brief, where Lego Ideas is um, the kind of well the the original plan of Lego Ideas was was this kind of open ended um, open brief. As long as you meet the guidelines, you know, you can submit an idea for a product, then we'll we'll consider it. Got it. Um, cool. Uh, just, uh, changing gears just a little bit, or I guess broadening it kind of beyond, beyond Lego. I know you're in general, like you said, I mean, prior, you were very engaged in the startup community here in Chicago. You're, you're a big advocate and a believer in, in community building in general, um, kind of as a, as a, as a kind of a, a key strategic tool. And I don't know if you've seen this, we've seen this with clients on our side is, you know, either it's because it feels um, touchy feely, or um, it's hard maybe for them to kind of quantify the impact of it. But when you're sitting down with a company or a person or whatever who's exploring, you know, kind of potentially embarking on one of these types of community building initiatives, I mean, what? For, how do you communicate the power of it and um, and maybe kind of win someone over who might be a little bit skeptical? Um, that's a really really good question. And I, I tend I tend to not I tend to not try to over oversell it because I actually don't believe that community I mean I, I'm believing in it as, as a strategic tool for the right application and and I don't think it's it's definitely not a panacea um, you and the reason why is that you can't just acquire a community um, you you certainly can't dictate to one you know this is a um, uh, you know a often decentralized network of people who share common interests and. If you're a company that has a product or a brand or a service, you know, hopefully you're lucky enough that 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 shared interest, you know, also involves what what you're making, what you're selling. Right. And, and so to foster a community around what you're doing, um, you need a great product. You need a great idea that that other people are passionate about, you know, organically um, and, and not everyone's going to be able to, you know, to do this. Um, but but I think when you find that. Um, you know, what happens is your, uh, people who are your, uh, what, what Eric Von Hippel at MIT calls the lead users, people who are taking a product or a service and they're, they're customizing it, they're hacking it to their own needs. Um, that's really able to drive, um, you know, it can drive, um, organic, um, interest through you know influencers and brand advocates it 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 can it can drive innovation um if you're able to capture that i think we're also seeing right now for the last couple of years um on the consumer product side of things a real disruption in um kind of traditional larger brands and these really quick and nimble, almost you know, Instagram brands, where it's like, I swear that these different companies advertising their shirts, it's the same company, right? They just put a bunch of different brands on it, um, you know, and they're running an A/B test on, on which brand is going to sell. Um, so you're seeing this radical disruption. Like I look at um, like a good example, like the shirts that I've bought in the last year. Um, you know, they're from all these like Instagram companies, and some of them are good, and some of them aren't. Um, and the the challenge there is like they're not going to build a fan community around these um I, let's just call them insta brands right <laughs> i mean um uh, shirts right and you're um as a consumer it's it's like you might find a couple of hits here or there but 
I think the power of of traditional brands and an opportunity for them is is that you walk into um you know a Brooks Brothers or a Polo or who whoever, whoever you're you're buying a dress shirt from right and it's consistent you know the product you're getting the cut might be a little dated you know right um but at least you know what you're getting um and and there's a lot of froth and disruption around um consumer products online but at the cost of like of like knowing what you're getting is a quality product or being able to um you know ensure customer satisfaction the you know the first time you you know the first time you purchase it and then secure loyalty um so where does community tie into that i think that i think that the larger brands you know they're the ones with something to lose and they you know, brand loyalty, you know, I'm not necessarily loyal to any of the companies that I, that I mentioned. Um, you know, I'm factoring for a few different things whenever I, um, you know, whenever I buy something, but if they want to, um, innovate with their consumers and stay relevant, I think it's certainly tapping into who are their best, uh, who, you know, who are their top users and what is it, you know, what is it that they want and using that to fuel, um, their, their new product development. One of the companies that I've been getting into lately is, is Uniqlo um, because it's, it's inexpensive um, and there's a clear system to it. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's high enough quality. It's, it's good enough looking. Right. Um, and I walk into one of the stores and I know what I'm going to get. Yeah. I wonder if there's a component of this that, you know, you kind of mentioned like the, the, um, you know, build a product that people love first. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because tr- I was trying to think, like, are there are there certain types of products that lend themselves more to this? And it seems like it's all over the place. I mean, you look at like Harley you, Davidson, or you look at IKEA, or whatever. And right. Like, there are these vibrant communities across all sorts of things, and it seems like is the common theme that they have a like a they're grounded in a why that's maybe outside of the what or how, how, you know. I think so. I'm glad you mentioned those two brands and. Um... You know, you, I mean, I know you sent me that question before, and I had done a little bit of reflecting on it, but I couldn't come up with an ironclad, like, it's these industries and not these industries. Um, and so you're right to say it's all over the board. Um, you know, at Lego, we would we would often cite Harley-Davidson and, and, and Ikea. Um, you know, pretty obvious uh, Harley-Davidson's um, um, fan community and, you know, outreach in the network that they've built, um, you know, and just the brand recognition and loyalty. Um and um, Ikea, there's many parallels to Lego, right? They're both Scandinavian. You, you know, they come with small components that you have to put together yourself. Um, and, you know, Ikea is a system like Lego is a system. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's, it's these are products that, that people love or maybe on the Ikea side, I think people love Ikea. But at the same time, it's, you know, it, it's cheap and it's quick and it gets the job done. So there's the utility factor. So there's products people love. And there's products that are just insanely useful, right? And with IKEA, you've got like IKEA hackers. And with Lego, you have the people who crack the Mindstorms NXT and you or RCX. And um, and you've got people who are there's a whole ecosystem of people who mold their own bricks. Um, and yeah, that are compatible with Lego. And it's it's not like the knockoffs in Asia. It's these are Lego fans that are mostly brand loyal, but they're making parts that the company doesn't or won't make. Um, doesn't make might be filling out gaps in the system, 
uh, won't make might be like realistic weapons from period wars, right? Um, so you have this entire ecosystem of people who are extending that. Wow, that's really cool. Um, is there anything like a playbook that you know that that, that someone so? Let's assume for a minute that I have a brand that would re that that would lend itself to something like this. I'm tapping into a group of people that are already um, buy into my why, and they're super engaged, and maybe they're kind of doing some of this stuff on their own already. Are there is there anything like a playbook, or are there principles, or or um, techniques, or strategies that you have found to be um, sort of consistently effective in um, really capturing that 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 community interest already and kind of magnifying it and making sure that a community building effort is successful? In the conversations that I've had um, through the years with different large um, consumer brands, you know, from, uh, you know, ranging from fashion and sportswear um, and then even into uh, public agencies in, in countries around the world that are doing uh, crowdsourcing efforts, um, you know, one of the things that I, I always advise and the things that I've noticed is like when you when you just simply, you know, intentionally listen to your your top customers, um, validate what they want, what they like, what they don't like, and and close the feedback loop. Um, and so I know I'm talking at like a really high level, you know, kind of a basic, um, you know, basic point. But nobody's going to like the suggestion box that's just a black hole, right? You've you've got to close the loop. And I've seen efforts struggle and 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 fail um, because. You know, or run into run into problems with the the end users when um, you know when you don't uh, close the loop. I was reading some research the other day um, about uh, corporate open innovation programs where um, some of the data was showing that it's disproportionately more effective to engage with people who it's their first suggestion, right? Um, because you're, you're versus someone who's a repeat one, because you want to validate that person, you want them to, you know, to you know to keep um, you know to keep coming back. Um, by now, when, when we were building Lego Kuso Lego Ideas, um, we were pretty much writing the book on it. Um, you know, and by now there are commercially available platforms that will create uh, crowdsourcing programs uh, for you. Some of those are uh, like a CMS, and you run it yourself. Um, others of those are like a managed service, and um, they have um, expert support. Um, and I've seen those range from, you know, highable and able to be white labeled to you're running your brand on a subdomain of someone else's brand, right? So they kind of span the gambit of of customization and hands on, hands off. And what I found from looking under the hood of a couple of those uh, companies, by way of the the people that I had you know, fortune to, to talk with is that, um, you know, it, there, there are repeatable processes there. And, you know, I think that, that a, a software vendor or, you know, or even a consultant will, will, will sell you what they think their magic process is, you know, for the fee. Um, but I think the, the real concern, like if I were to advise someone, it's, it's know why, you know, start with why, you know, know why you're doing this with your product. Um, you know, know what you want to get out of it. And, um, and like, be honest and be authentic. And I know that people have been saying that in the web 2.0 social media world for years and years, but um, I see so much inauthenticity that it's not old yet because people obviously haven't learned. Uh, you, you can't control a community. You, you can't lie to them. You, you, can't, um, um, you can't ignore them, right? If you have one, you know, you, you're, you're going to have to engage. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
we, you know, we've done several, you know, either, either like pseudo social types of engagements or like marketplace engagements where you got two sides or like a user generated content type of thing. And, you know, to your point about that welcoming, we found like seating is critically important where it's like, especially in the early days of a, of a, of something like that. Um, if someone comes in and they don't see that there's activity in there and that the community is already pretty vibrant, then they bail. And then the next group comes in and they see the same thing and they bail. And so to your point about the feeding of yep. it seems really important, like welcoming them. And there's a very, it seems like it would be almost like difficult to impossible to, to just launch it and forget it um, or to have this be fully automated. It seems like there's a, there's a huge need for the, the community management aspect of it. And the, you know, the, the per, like you can't really fully automate that. Is that accurate or? Absolutely. Absolutely. So on seeding, um, my, my view on seeding is that that should be authentic. So you can handpick some people, um, incentivize them to see for you, um, you know, and, 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 and do that. And then you can transition into the organic, um, sourcing of the content. That's how I would do it. That's how I would advise someone to do it. Um, you know, I think that the risks, uh, of, of kind of astroturfing it, of, of making up your own stuff and trying to pass it off as organic are, are too high, um, too high for someone on the community management aspect. Absolutely. Um, we were, we ran a really tight, um, you know, small team for, for a long time. And, um, there was always the, the balance between, you know, do we moderate incoming content? Do we, um, go after the, the, the disruptive comments on the platform, you know, or do we create content and do we engage the people who are like the most productive, the most positive people. And, and so you kind of have to, you have to ensure that there's, good rules of engagement, good house rules and consistent, um, gentle, hopefully enforcement of those rules. Um, uh, so that you don't allow a toxic environment to take hold. Um, but at the same time, those are almost two opposing forces, like overwhelm the community with good content, uh, reward the people who, who are, um, you know, contributing positively and help the people who are learning through your platform and upskilling themselves and getting better at ideating and participating, you know, help those people level up. And, and on the other end of it, you've got to, you've got to do the operations. You've got to, in Lego's case, um, the content was pre-moderated because um, here you've got a rendering or a design of a Lego model um, that, that has incredible viral potential. And so we need to make sure it's, you know, it's appropriate for the internet, what they're submitting. Um, it's appropriate for the brand. Um, you know, and it also fits that, you know, fits that design brief. So, um, so you kind of, there's always that interplay. So, and, and, and it's a, one thing I have noticed is that, uh, leadership who, um, who often will commission a program like this, um, would be really served to develop a, an understanding of exactly what it takes, how much work it takes um, from the technology and the platform side of it um, to the staffing and the content creation. Um, because I think that, I think that if they get that right, they're going to empower their team to have a greater chance at success because, you know, things won't break or, you know, things won't fall through the cracks or, um, you know, there, there won't be, if there's an incident in the community, they'll have enough resources to contain it. Um, you know, they're, you're taking your in community management, you're taking care of the emotional well-being of your staff, right? So if you understand what it takes, 
And uh, I mean, you know, the old the old saying my 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 grandfather used to say, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Um, so yeah, it's going to look expensive on the on the front end, um, but it's a lot less expensive. It's a lot less risky than not engaging your community at all or engaging them in a half measure. Mm-hmm. Do do you um do you have any perspective on? It seems like they're they're. You know, there are debates that have gone back and forth over the years around things like um, anonymizing users versus having them kind of put, you know, their actual names, you know, in the community or um, strategies around, uh, you know, you mentioned rewarding people, you know, like strategies around kind of gamification and like points and badges and all that kind of stuff. And some people think that that's great and some people think that that's, um, you know, a bolt-on that's gimmicky or whatever it is. I mean, do, do you, at a, at a structural level for the actual, um, or the, you know, the, the, the delivery mechanism um, or the user experience through which people are kind of engaging in the community, do you, do you have any sort of perspectives on any of that kind of stuff in terms of structuring a community well, or does it just sort of depend on the nature of the business and, and, and that kind of thing? Are there, is there anything that, you know, categorically you think people should do or not do? Um, Within, within a range, uh, I think that, you know, I think that there are situations where you might want to dial up or dial down a certain feature set. Um, personally, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with pseudonyms, but I'm not okay with anonymity. Um, you know, I think we've, you know, I think we've seen, I think we've seen the negative effects of anonymity on the internet, um, um, already. Um, and if someone has invested in a, a handle, a pseudonym, and they've attached their identity to it and they have something to lose um, and they're consistent in that identity, um, then, you know, by all means, personally, I prefer to go by my real name online. Um, and that, um, you know, in, in that sense, it keeps me out of trouble, right? You know, it forces me to behave. Um, and I, I certainly weigh um, 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 the contributions of people who are using their real name or something you can tie back to their identity as, as, as stronger. Um, but you know, the, the, the exception is Facebook. I mean, look at what people write on Facebook, right? And they're using their real names. Um, (laughs) so, um, and on the gamification thing, I think that it is, um, I think gamification, it's, you know, it's, it's behavior design, designing for the outcomes that, that you want. Um, there's been a bit of gamification on on Lego ideas, and I've I've taken the time to do some research on on gamification techniques. And there's a lot more that I love to be able to play with and implement. But um, in in that sense, what I've been seeing from the vendors of crowdsourcing platforms is that they they over prescribe it, and they un without understanding the implications of how people are going to use those badges or, or, or points, you know, when they're in the wild. And then when you introduce something, a feature to the community, and then you take it away, um, you know, uh, um, will we'll be upon you, right? Uh, you'll, 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 you'll get the wrath because some people are going to be on there just to collect points. Um, and when you take their points away, right, um, there's, um, there's actually, if you're familiar with the, um, the book, I think it's called Octalysis, the gamification framework by Yukai Chow, um, and um, and so that um, yeah, that talks. He divides it left brain, right brain, and 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 white hat and black hat. So um, the I, I can't remember exactly. I'm not sure if it's like the analytic and creative. Um, so I'm not going to comment on the brains. But the the white hat and the black hat is like good altruistic 
um, you know, or pro-social intentions uh, versus versus sort of dark, um, you know, addictive uh, patterns, right? And we've certainly seen um, like social platforms that are just jonesing for engagement, right, for ad revenue, um, exploit exploit that black hat, and um, and so. But you've you've got to understand, like, if you introduce a mechanic into a program, what how is that going to change people's behavior? So what I would say is is walk before you run. Don't introduce a whole framework. Um, test one thing, and 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 don't be afraid to adjust it as you go. Um, and you know s s what I would say is that allow yourself. You're building a program like this. Allow yourself the time and the space. And for an executive, that's going to mean that's going to mean budget, and that's going to mean withholding judgment for a period of time where some tests can be run, um, you know, before really doubling down on something. Because I think every community, while you can generalize, while there are commonalities, you're going to find different tweaks in different communities that are, um, you know, who your audience is. Is this are these consumers? Is it the general public? Is it? Um, is it industry professionals? Is it, you know, what level of education, geography, you know, those factors that are going to also influence, you know, how people are responding and also adapting the system you put in front of them. Yeah, got it. Very cool. Um, so kind of looking, looking forward, I mean, I, I know you're now you're sort of helping organizations uh, with kind of corporate innovation stuff and doing some of the, you know, it sounds like you're doing some design things and things like that. I mean, you're, it sounds like you're, you're thinking broader, then um, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure you're bringing your kind of your community building and kind of open innovation sort of background to it. But I, it, it sounds like you're thinking you know broader than that too. What are what are you, what are you most excited about? I guess from a from a corporate innovation perspective, or what do you, where do you see things? Um, what are you looking forward to as you kind of dig more into that world? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so yeah, it's I'm I'm definitely in a very exploratory state right now. Um, you know, I've been doing, like I've been saying, I've been, I've had a couple of freelance uh, clients and projects, and I've been in a lot more coffees and conversations about what people are doing around Silicon Valley, or whether that's um, accelerators, incubators, um, VCs, or whether that's uh, product companies, you know, software, um, you know, companies as well. Um, two areas that I'm really excited about, um, the, I guess the meta, the the meta thing that I'm most excited about is like generalizing what has been, um, you know, I've been applying this to Lego uh, and and pulling out those commonalities, those repeatable processes and, and generalizing that across industry, right? Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about that, you know, sort of a, a, a next chapter in what I get to explore. Um, specifically, I'm really into brands whose products are hackable. So um, not hackable like software, but but hackable like you can modify them you can adapt them so um there's that ecosystem of lego entrepreneurs um there's uh you know there's the ikea hackers you know things like that or you know what are people doing with um with consumer products that might be a system um you know and how are they extending those and modifying those you know to their their purpose because i think that's a really um easy jump from the Lego world, um, I can instantly understand the creator community around um, another brand like that. So, I mean, as far as like someone who I'd be interested in talking to, it's, it's definitely companies like that. Um, the other thing I'm really excited about is the mobility space. Um, you've had a couple of guests on the show 
um, talking about um, real estate and then talking about parking and, 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 and transportation. So in the last seven years of working for Lego, I've been to Denmark over 35 times. And um, that really, so I don't know if you've been to Denmark or Scandinavia, but you've got full like like stone and concrete, what we call in the States protected bike lanes. Um, a protected bike lane is um, is a lane that it's not like just shoved next to the door zone of like parallel parking. Um, it's it's um, it's um, it's actually on the sidewalk side of a row of parked cars, or it's up on the curb away from the auto travel lane. And when you create spaces for people on bicycles, you know, or smaller vehicles, everybody, all the traffic moves better, right? And the fewer people you have in in single occupant cars, the more you fix congestion, right? So, um, and you get more people doing that because they feel safer. Um, so Denmark really exposed me to good urbanism, good human-centered city design. Um, the Danish design and 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 um, uh, visual aesthetic, housewares, fashion, you know, it's 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 some of the best in the world. Um, and I just love it. Uh, Copenhagen is one of my favorite places um, in the world. And and so from the mobility, but then what I would do is I would come back and I was living in Hartford, Connecticut for about five years. And it's just one of the cities that was worst affected by the, um, the quote unquote, um, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, urban renewal of the 1970s where they like bulldoze cities and put highways through them, right? Um, and and so like half of Hartford is surface parking lots and, and it's a commuter town where people, you know, at least the, the wealthier people will communicate or com commute in and out from the, the, the suburbs every day. And um, so you've got the the problems with the, you know, under enforcement of traffic, you know, overbuilt streets. And it's just a, it's a pretty bad landscape for you to be a pedestrian or a, or a bicyclist or, or even someone in a car because, you know, people are crazy. Um, so I had that contrast, right. And that really created a lot of dissonance in me. I became an advocate in, in Hartford for, um, for better, safer infrastructure for people walking and biking, you know, better public transit, um, you know, a shift from that, single occupant car centric um uh, philosophy and and now what i'm doing with that or what i'm looking to do with that is is see how i can merge the corporate innovation the innovation processes um the knowledge and the network that i've built up from um really being a lay person but just immersing myself in this in denmark um advocating um and, and you know and cutting my teeth in connecticut and then fuse that with silicon valley you know what's going on here so i'm looking into some opportunities in the e-mobility space um i would be looking to support um you know how people transform the way we think about deploying infrastructure because i i believe that yes there's going to be a lot of excitement in in vehicles in the next 10 years or so um uh, but the infrastructure has to catch up to it, right? Um, so, so those are the areas I'm really excited about. Um, working with companies who have hackable products um, or remixable products, and how to apply this innovation lens and crowd and participatory, participatory lens to um, to mobility and infrastructure. Very, very cool. Um, awesome. So, so for folks that want to learn, I guess, learn more, keep tabs on kind of 
what you're going to be doing as things kind of evolve or just to want to get in touch with you in general? How, where can I point people to? Yeah, my website is timcourtney.net. So that's my first name and last name, .net, timcourtney.net. You can also reach me um, at tim at timcourtney.net or um, you know, the same uh, Tim Courtney on LinkedIn. Very cool. Well, Tim, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. And, and uh, it's, uh, it was, uh, you know, I was a Lego kid and I, I'm, I'm getting to enjoy doing it again with my, my kids now. And, and uh, so I was super excited to do this. It was kind of a fascinating sort of behind the scenes look at how, how that whole thing happened. So thanks so much for, uh, for joining us. Awesome, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Our guest today was Tim Courtney. That's it for this episode of The Disruptors. For more ideas on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.